Um, hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films uh, within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau and joining me, as always, is uh, the Mighty Fine Blogs, Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. This week, that sounded like I was just fobbing Ed off there. I, I really didn't mean to. I'm great, Ed. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's just that we've been here for about an hour and a half already. Um, but yeah, we're, we're talking this week about uh, critics. Uh, whilst not a theme in itself, uh, interesting to talk about. Um, especially given that this week, in fact yesterday, as we record this, um, we finally got to hear the results. We waited ten long years to hear the results of the... Um, I don't know, what do you call something when it's every ten years? Um, Decennial? I don't know. The decennial poll. I've yeah. that. That's now the, I guess word, so. now the word. Um, decadial. The decadial um, search for the best film of all time. And yesterday, uh, Sight and Sound magazine um, told us what the best films of all time were, as voted for by 800? I think it was 800 yeah, critics and directors. Something like 847. Wow, oh, okay. Get specific. Um, <laughs> specific but, and possibly wrong, but that's the number that leaps out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and yesterday, yes, we got the results, and um, wow, they were startling um we got 10 films which were all well most of them were on the top 10 last time but yep. there was a massive change because we have a new number one freddie's so got f- freddie's got, got, f- got fingered <laughs> yeah um it uh, displaces dumb and dumber at the top <laughs> of the list um no we have got uh, the 10 films they've given to us are in reverse order uh, eight and a half have you seen that i have yes no i've never seen it uh the passion of joan of arc ah uh, yes yeah i've not seen that one either uh, a Man with a Movie Camera. Yep. Yep, not seen that one. Um, the Searchers. Yep. I've seen some of that one. I've seen most of that one, in fact. I've seen the end. Let's count it. Yeah, we'll count it. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yep. Yep, I've seen most of that. Um, there's that Simpsons parody. I've seen that one. Um, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. I have seen 50 minutes of it. Excellent. We're <laughs> most so qualified. Right now, we're into, I'm, I, I've seen all of the top four. Yeah, there okay, we go. That's good. Uh, La Regla de Jus. Yep. Or The Rules of the Game, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, that's all right. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tokyo Story. Yes, I watched that today. Uh, the Japanese set uh, Toy Story sequel. Uh, Citizen Kane is bumped down to number two, which is, you know, has the world gone mad? Because um, it's been replaced by Vertigo, uh, a film uh, uh, at number one. By... I thought it would be wet, wet, wet. No, <laughs> it would have been great um, had it been. Um, but yes, uh, <laughs> I've only just got that wet, wet, wet joke. <laughs> um, yeah. Wet 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 was at number one slightly longer than Citizen Kane has been since ni- <laughs> 1952. Uh, was was that the first poll, 1952? Yeah, it wasn't. It was, I think it first topped it in in 62. What was num- the first time around? Was it Bicycle Thieves? Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure it Which was. Which isn't in the top ten anymore. No, it's interesting that it's like take the plate tectonics, isn't it? It's very slow change. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a coincidence as well that isn't there a big Alfred Hitchcock retrospective at the B- BFI this year? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a coincidence there. Yeah. And also, Chris Marker, how desperate was he to make the top 50 by dying two <laughs> days before the poll was announced? You know, it's and good the, for record sales, isn't yeah. it? I, watched, uh, I actually watched Legetti on YouTube as, uh, as I did most of Sunrise and uh, Tokyo Story in preparation for this. Yeah, uh, Legetti is a... Uh, a magnificent piece of work. It is fantastic. I was genuinely surprised by how much it resembled 12 Monkeys. Yeah. Purely because when I heard it, when you see it's like, you know, based on, mm-hmm. and you see it's 26 minutes, you think, oh, they've got to have invented like a huge amount of stuff. But it really covers a 
pretty a lot of the same material. They do do the time travel device slightly better in Legete. It mm. looks like a man's got a bra on his face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then he kind that's of just how, travels through time. That's how uh, I like to imagine it will happen. Yep. <laughs> One day it will be with us. Um, so the overall list, because there was 50 voted for, and um, it's all it's all much the same in keeping with that top 10. Um, what did you think of the list in the end? Uh, well, it's, it's a good list. There's some good films on there. How many have you seen out of the 50? Uh, it's about, I think it's about 38. I've so seen, I've seen, a, I've seen 21. Good, That's a good many cool. of them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say with these sort of things. Um, you know, any list is about as arbitrary as any other, really. I mean, this one is more informed than, say, the IMDb top 250, 250 because yeah. uh you're consulting with filmmakers and critics not just uh, the joe public but also because people have had to you know i think a lot of the people who've been involved they've had a long they've had a long time to think about these sort of things um particularly if they've done it like the la- if they voted in the last couple you know mm-hmm. going back 20 or 30 years um they've had decades to think about what they would put in their particular top 10s and i think that uh really reflects the choices and also the idea that uh, they are voting for what they consider to be the greatest rather than necessarily their personal favourites. I mean, some obviously did vote that way. You were telling me about someone who who voted pretty much that way beforehand. Yeah, it was... uh, I think Guy Lodge said that he was going to not... Uh, vote for films that he respected or admired mm. academically and just yeah. go for his favourites because the, they left it quite open mm. on the ballot forms I think it said uh, you know you can pick something that's personal you can pick something that you know is the greatest example of film or you know that's uh, a kind of landmark film as it were and everything in there is I mean it's a pretty dry list isn't it it's pretty yeah. there's not a lot of comedy on that list there's no. some like it hot and singing in the rain I think are the only comedies yeah and there's not a huge there's no blockbusters no even though uh, some of them are i would say are probably culturally significant enough well, something like intolerance that's a blockbuster isn't it i guess yes ben isn't on the list no. isn't it i thought it was is it hang on i'm gonna scroll down my list this is this is podcast gold <laughs> me scrolling down to try and find if intolerance is on the list we need some music for that hang on Oh, hang on. No, Metropolis, does that count as a blockbuster? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, well, no, Intolerance isn't on there, nor is Greed. Uh, Greed's kind of a hard one to put in there, because so little of it really survives. Um, But uh, what did strike me was that this year, I think there was a lot of people jumping up and down thinking that this year was finally where we'd see a new film, as in one made in the last 40 years in the uh, top crack, 10 crack the top 10 and there was a lot of talk about um there will be blood and there was a chinese film i can't remember the name of it is it one and a two uh, i think so yeah yeah that people you know were getting uh, jazzed about but only six of the top 50 were made in my lifetime and i was born in 1980 yeah so that is it's very much yeah. leans uh back and the, the top 10 itself actually leans further back. The than, newest film is 1968. Yeah, whereas last time The Godfather made it in there, but that was only because they conflated... They the added one and two together. One and two they? together, yeah. Whereas this time they made it separate, which I think is correct. I, yeah, they, they are, are different films. Yeah, they were released separately. They weren't filmed They didn't add Godfather work. 3 there, did they? No. Because <laughs> that's fucking awful. Um, but, but as a result, the uh, the top 10 skews even older than it did yeah so the newest film is 44 years old yes 
nice. uh, which is 2001 a space odyssey mm-hmm. which is probably the uh of of the top 10 it's probably the boldest and the most although i don't know man with a movie camera is because i watched that um yesterday um for the first time and that one even though it was made in 1928 or mm-hmm. 27s very very out there and avant-garde but uh, in terms of narrative filmmaking, film uh, film 2001? <laughs> yeah, film 2001. 2001 A Space Odyssey is still very out there and very experimental and, and strange in a way that I think some of the others aren't, uh, at least formally, you know, in terms of the style of it. So what does this list say about uh, the kind of critical mass uh, of today? Still, just... still stuck in the past? I just, I think it takes a really long time for people to form a consensus about anything. Like Kane, it took 21 years for people to say that Citizen Kane was the greatest film ever made, um, which is a fairly long time. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, as time goes on, there are more films that get made. So older films, I think people tend to hold on to the older films more strongly so that they don't get forgotten, because I think there is... There, culture in general favors the new in a lot of instances and i think that maybe there's that kind of thing but also um there are far more films on average released every year than uh than there were when a lot of these previous lists were made Mm -hmm. or at least more high profile and it's you as because there's a, a broader range of opinion it's kind of harder to solidify around like what are the few sign of kind of cast iron masterpieces of any given year or any given decade mm-hmm. and as such it's kind of i think it's more difficult to kind of get people to agree or, or to believe that on a list of their own personal list of the 10 best films ever made that they should you know knock uh vertigo or passion of joan of arc off it in favor of there will be blood. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you pleased to see make the list? Um, most things on there. I mean, like the, my main issue with it is, and it's not really an issue with the list. It's that a lot of directors I love are rec- are represented, but not, not with the film you like. Not best. the film that I would like. Vertigo is great, but my favourite Hitchcock's Rear Window or Strangers on a Train. You know, um, not that that doesn't take anything away from vertigo which is great mm. that's the same as citizen kane my favorite orson wells is transforms the movie <laughs> but they they won't include it <laughs> but maybe in 21 years time maybe consensus uh so you know so it's like there's no i'm like there's hardly any films on that list that i would look at and just say oh you know well done for include uh, i'm really pleased to see that one although um i was quite pleased to see uh Late spring, the Yazero Ozu one, mm. Yasuzero Ozu film, uh, get quite high up in the rankings. Uh, once I remembered that I had seen it. Number 15, Pop Pickers. Because uh, the problem, I've seen a fair few Ozu films, but I can never remember which one's which because they all, a lot of them have the late, early, spring, winter, you know, season at the end of it, so they kind of all blur together. So when I looked at which one late spring was and realised that it was my favourite one, I I was like, oh yeah, it's great that that one's up there. I just had to remember which one it was in his canon. That's why Tokyo, I think that's the reason why Tokyo Story tends to get so highly rated, is it's the one with the most distinct title. (laughs) It's the easiest for people to remember. Yeah, the Ozu film that I remember with with 
well, the one I my favourite Ozu film, um, and I've studied his back catalogue to the extent that I've seen two, uh, is Record of a Tenement Gentleman, which is uh, great because it's only seventy one minutes long, mm. and it's very funny. Yeah, in a very touching kind of way, and a hell of a title. It is record of a tenement gentleman. I think that's probably a mispronunciation or mis mistranslation. Um, it sounds like it should be an album title. Yeah, like really. the Kinks would have recorded that. <laughs> um, I was really pleased to see uh, in the mood for love on the list. I'm yeah. not sure if that was on the 2002 list. It probably would have been too new. Yeah, it's only yeah, it wouldn't have been. Isn't it? it wouldn't have been included then. I don't think. Um, but I mean, out of all the new films, I mean that and Mulholland Drive are the yes, Mulholland the, Drive. The I was very pleased ones. to see on there. Um, that have been added, uh, My Neighbour Totoro. Um, yep, is great. In there. Is that the only animated film on the list? I think so. I don't remember seeing any other ones. Yeah. But yeah, no, th- those ones are all uh, are all terrific. Yeah. Terrific. 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 Um, so yeah, um, that's, so the critics list was, was, you know, fairly predictable. The director's list was quite interesting because mm. it's been suggested that the, the directors will never knock Citizen Kane off number one because it is their director's manual it's a how to make films in yeah. the modern era modern era well just how to make films in general um but it certainly was by tokyo story a much less flashy yeah directing um piece yeah it's very surprising it is very surprising because if you because yeah as you say with citizen kane if you want to learn how to make films that's mm-hmm. a, that's pretty much the textbook way to start because it helped invent a lot of modern film grammar and or it if it didn't invent it it sort of coalesced a lot of them into a single place yeah so you didn't have to go and watch battleship potemkin and the searchers mm-hmm. uh no not searchers, um stagecoach you yeah. know and all the things that wells had to watch in order to figure out how to do that stuff you can just watch citizen kane and thought oh right that's how you do montage and uh deep focus and all that sort of stuff so to see it replaced by tokyo story a film in which the camera moves once yeah uh, mm-hmm. as as roger ebert once said uh it moves once which is quite a lot for a which is more than usual for an ozu film <laughs> yep um and it's a very kind of quiet study of japanese family life um the, it, you wouldn't expect it i mean there's the films that make it into the top 10 of the director's list things like seven samurai and mm. and taxi driver are very much uh dynamic and yeah. expressive whereas tokyo story isn't no, I it's, the exact, it's the exact opposite of yeah. dynamic and expressive not to take away from it it's a really great film but yeah as you say you think uh the directors may not be or maybe uh the minimalism of it is what attracts them to it. It, it achieves all of its aims with so little f- uh, flair or fuss, mm. which is what impressed me about it. Because, as I say, I watched it today for the first time, and I thought it was great as a uh, as a as a something that was uh, kind of uh, as a work of restraint, which mm-hmm. is what it is. Until the uh, sort of tragedy in the final act when Godzilla turns up, yeah, and <laughs> it takes a, a sudden turn. <laughs> yeah. But but he's very upset because right. it was very very <laughs> very maudlin and it's shot in a very static way from a low angle. Yeah, um, I they the people have been tweeting about it because the magazine Titan Sound magazine is released this week and you can actually read uh, the list is broken. You can read every single person who voted for it and what they picked. Um, and I was stunned. Um, just for humanity in general, that Michael Mann picked Avatar. Yeah, it's a strange it's one, a isn't very it? Very strange choice. I mean, I would have expected maybe James Cameron to pick Avatar, <laughs> but Michael Mann, Avatar. Yeah, really? It's really weird. But it's, uh, it, you can't really 
everyone sees something different in film, really. So I suppose may, he sees something because uh, obviously he's very he's a very formalist sort of director. A lot of his films are very much about the way they're shot. Mm-hmm. Maybe he admires the the craft that goes into something like Avatar. Because I can't imagine, or maybe he just kind of think, hey, yeah, it's nice that he used my earlier film as a basis for his because it is kind of. Uh, um, Last of the Mohicans. It's kind of Last of the Mohicans, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's why he likes it. Yeah, maybe he just wanted to give a fuck you to Cameron by making sure Avatar only got one vote. <laughs> by giving him that one vote. Um, yeah, uh, speaking of, um, as we were about 20 minutes ago, uh, critical mass, um, the role of film critic has kind of, uh, I want to say evolved, but I don't really mean evolved, I mean devolved, <laughs> um, to the point now where um, we don't really have... Uh, well, film criticism is um, a kind of a dying art. Um, do you agree with that statement? Um, I think in the traditional way in which we consider film criticism as sort of tastemakers, mm-hmm. uh, I think it is. But I think also uh, perhaps people overvalue the role it played in the past because I don't think it's ever been a case where critics can uh, stop people from seeing terrible films because mm-hmm. they're the history of cinema is littered with terrible films that were huge mistakes. Critically la- uh, panned films that uh, are hugely successful and critically lauded films that no one goes to see. Yes. Uh, so I think there's... Uh, it's not as if like the power of the critic has been broken, but the, uh, the number of voices has certainly increased since the age of the internet. There's not as much of a n- monopoly no. on it. Um which has its pros and cons because I think that that it's the same as if you know I I did uh, history uh, in my degree and one of the things you had to learn about was the way in which the sort of sixties and seventies saw a growth of different historical perspectives as um, you know sort of feminist and Marxist history started to become uh, interpretations started to become more prevalent or uh, historical interpretations from uh, countries that were usually marginalised like former colonies and things mm-hmm. like that and how it leads to uh, an end of history as a single narrative about, you know, great men advancing mankind. Written by winners. Written by winners, yeah, to a multi-stranded story that goes off in many different directions and has no focus. Uh, Which, again, you know, it lacks the simplicity of older versions of history, but also means that everyone's voice is heard and you get a more varied... And I think that's the same with film criticism. I think there's there's a, a greater variety of opinion out there, some good, some bad, but all varied, mm. which I think is uh, a greater situation than a relatively small number of people gu- guiding the mainstream conversation or, and the sort of more interesting things coming through in academia. So, I mean, in terms of criticism leading on to uh, film journalism, mm. um, that's something that's that we have to say is kind of definitely on 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 the wane because um there's less jobs there's less posts and with the advent mm. of uh film bloggers um uh there's kind of the the, the need for film journalism is, is being slowly eroded away or the perception that is is being eroded yeah, away yeah but i guess it depends on what you consider to be the most important thing about film journalism because i don't think that like there seems to be more film journalism than ever in terms of people reporting just news but not not news about films but sort of minutiae 
you know, yeah, it's, it's basically rewriting press releases and yeah, like yeah. casting news or such and such is in rumours to direct a film and mm-hmm. stuff like stuff that in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, there's more chatter in that regard. I think in terms of you know uh, reviews, which is kind of the point at which criticism in, in terms of more of a, an academic subject and journalism meet. Uh, I think that's still going relatively strongly because. If, if only because, you know, with so many voices out there, the ones that are kind of clear and defined tend to draw people to them. You know, you see people like, uh, you know, Scott Weinberg, who writes for Fearnet and, and Twitch Film. He has got a very clear voice and he's, he's uh, drawn quite a lot of people to him as a writer because of the strength of that voice and, you know, through the internet. And I, I think he probably has a bigger audience now than when he just wrote for print journalism. I mean, there's an interesting point you raised there about film news and things. There's probably uh, not an exaggeration on my part to say that if there was a news story of the day, that there's probably a 90% chance that you will be reading it on a site written yeah. by someone who isn't a professional who's doing it in their own spare time. Yeah. The you know the big outlets, outlets I suppose like Slash Film and mm. Any Call and Hey You Guys, are all written by people who don't pay their staff. They you know are kept going by advertising revenue. I I, I guess yeah. Um, but just people doing it for the love of it, um, rather than some better than others. Some better than others. Yeah, um, I think I think there's a slightly like Slash Film is slightly better than Ain't It Cool News, but mm, neither's uh, neither's particularly good. Aren't no. They? Not um, in that regard. But, I mean, that's the point, is that, like, we will read a news story from one of those outlets, but it's not been written by a, journal- a journalist. It's mm. been written by a fan who's yeah. slightly more articulate than the mongs who comment on the board. Yeah, I've read that. I, I definitely encountered that just today, because they announced today, the day we were recording this, that Christopher Eccleston is going to be in the Thor sequel. Yeah. And the story that I read... By the that time on, this airs, he probably would have left and yeah. been replaced by David Tennant. <laughs> um, when... I read that, the story I read that on on the website, I can't remember which site it was, but it was very much a, uh, it read like just copying and paste, slightly reworded from a press release and then that they had gone on Wikipedia to kind of get the pertinent details about the character from the comics, including revealing that the the fate of the character in many of the storylines in which he's featured, which to me seems like possibly giving away the ending. Because maybe... Maybe they don't use the comics as a basis, but if uh, it's kind of something great and important, like mm. the way in which the character dies, yeah. that might inform what that they, inform d- what they make the film. Um, which is the sort of thing that a journalist would consider, you know, if you're going to explain who this character is, explain what his role is, not... Uh, oh, this character does this, 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 and then he is killed by this character. Yeah, I... I have been in that position myself where I've written for websites in the past and um, been asked to do a news piece on something I know nothing about. Mm. might be a trailer. And then, you know, you watch the trailer, you look up the website and just regurgitate the facts. And yeah. it's, I mean, someone like Slash Film is the kind of worse for that because they will report even non-stories. Uh, people, you know, they might have a story that's like, Christian Bale might not be in this film. Yeah, what? wasn't there a story that um, the Shiznit uh, pointed out as the height of non-news, which is where I was saying, like, uh, some actress was not going to be in a film. Which is like... Yep, that's, that's pretty much what we knew yeah, beforehand. Yeah, which is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's 
the exact opposite of news telling us something that's not happening. I mean, that is funny you should mention the Shiznit because there there are an awful lot of good uh, film websites out there, but they are all non non professional. Mm. It's hard to call them amateur because yeah. they're written a lot better than some of people who write professionally, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you know, is is there a future for those for bloggers? Is there a way to bloggers to make money out of their site unless it's uh, through advertising? I think it's mainly through advertising, uh, which is. Uh, a shame but i think that's kind of the that's the economic model that exists unless the site becomes popular enough that it can just uh but yeah but again if it gets popular enough that it in some way can get money from sponsoring or something that's just another form of advertising really i mean that's where i think something like the av club seems to be heading that way they've Mm. closed down some of their local papers in recent years because, uh, uh, but their website has been getting like a huge amount of traffic, and they are able to pay their writers because they're getting a combination of advertising, you know, hits, and you know what they get from the paper things. But you kind of get the sense that there's only so long that you know a paper subsidiary to the Onion satirical news thing can mm-hmm. survive, really, especially when so much of their content almost certainly doesn't make it into the paper because they have so much going up every day. Yeah, um, I concur. Um, what is the state of of uh, criticism today in terms of uh, where it's been historically? I mean, it's difficult to pick out individual voices in film criticism now, isn't mm. it? Whereas before we had someone like a Pauline Kael, yeah. who would be, whether you liked her or disagreed with her or agreed with her, a very unique voice in the world of film criticism. And one thing that's been very much prevalent in the, I mean, in the last five years it's really uh kind of gone off the hook is uh the whole rotten tomatoes metacritic thing which is it makes me want to fucking vomit if i'm perfectly honest that you know people cannot uh decipher a review written with uh you know informative discourse in it and then work out what someone's opinion is they just need to know if it's fresh or if it's rotten, yeah. and the the degree to which it is. Even I mean, it, and I, I actually saw it, the the DVD of Attack the Block has the Rotten Tomatoes score on the front. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it's like it says ninety three percent fresh yeah. or whatever. And it's just that's depressing. I know it's very depressing. I mean, it's. I mean, I find star ratings reductive. So mm. doing a kind of um, aggregated. aggregated score, um, which I mean, how do you aggregate something like the review in Sight and Sound, for example, which features no stars and you know, it's all subjective whether you think that person's positive or not and I yeah. mean what if it's I, mean, you know, I don't get it how they do it but it, it's very it, it seems to be that is moving towards what people think is the status quo and the consensus and what people think about films is the Rotten Tomatoes rating yeah and like even the Rotten Tomatoes score sometimes it's hard to see how they've reached the conclusion as to whether or not a film is rotten or, or fresh because you'll see like the red tomato or the green tomato next to the, to the their face, and then the quote will say something to the opposite effect because mm. the the review might be very very mixed, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to quantify an opinion um, of a film that's a tremendous mixed bag uh, like, into a tomato. Yeah, very into into, to into a tomato. yeah into something that's so uh, reductive, like um, a film like, for example, Prometheus, a film that I did not like at all in many respects but greatly respected in others mm-hmm. you know it's like how do you quantify that i mean you know you say that 
it's it's hard to say whether or not that's a good or bad film because you have to say well there are elements of it that are very very good and elements of it that are very very bad so like any way of uh, trying to qualify that those sort of opinions are immensely reductive mm. and i think it's it's difficult especially when um I don't know, this isn't really going to be news to anyone is it but uh, a lot of major outlets um will um give a film a positive or non-committal review mm. in return for advertising yes. uh, revenue um i mean I, I you know i don't can it legally get me into trouble if i name one of the outlets that does this don't think so i think so someone like an empire magazine mm. um who will give something like transformers 2 revenge of the a, fallen like a three, three star review and just say it's worse than the previous film yeah um but still give it a three star review yeah it's kind of yeah, that's that's fishy. But then there's you know throughout the magazine there will be lots of advertising space brought up by or the studio or interviews. I mean something like I mean, you mentioned Prometheus. You said I, mean, I don't really know what they gave Prometheus. Uh, I think five, five or four stars, I'd imagine. Um, I think they gave it four. But they invested so much in that. I mean, the last Empire I bought, which is uh, I don't know the only one I've bought in the last three or four years, um, was a Prometheus special, and it had forty odd pages of its of its total page count was about prometheus that invested so much into going on a set visit and and doing all this all these exclusive details and then i look back at the alien films and all this and then you know what if the film's rubbish i mean look at phantom menace they gave it four <laughs> stars and said and this is a quote i'll always remember nowhere near as good as the first two but definitely better than return of the jedi and i wonder whether they're kind of I don't know if they've ever copped for that. They certainly copped for the four stars they gave Pearl Harbor. Mm. They, you know, they said they admitted they got that wrong. But Didn't they uh, take the review of Attack of the Clones off? Didn't they gave that five stars. Yeah, Kim Newman gave that five stars. But they've since taken it off the website, so you can't read it. Oh wow! Uh, which is either an admission of guilt or them frantically hoping that people will forget. <laughs> yeah, they also gave. Fletch lives four stars, which is that's a that's a travesty. That's a terrible film. Yeah, well, part part of it's you know individual reviewers. They might have got the one reviewer who said that who loved Fletch lives, who loved Fletch lives, who loved uh, Phantom Menace. And in the past, they have you know they've offered correctives when it's released on home video. I remember they gave The Fountain four stars uh, when it was in the theatre, which I would agree with. I like The Fountain, and when it was on home, uh, one star, I believe. Yeah, it was one star when it was out on DVD because it was the sort of film that provoked such massively differing uh, responses that they felt they had to offer a uh, a corrective view because mm. they, and it, and it was the sort of film that people either loved or absolutely despised mm. so i think that there's uh there's something to be said for it for per the reviewer's personal preferences but yeah i think there is there are some shadier aspects to that practice which would often skew um, Rotten Tomatoes ratings and, and we've had a, re uh, a thing recently where um, people have been accused of deliberately ruining uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores. Yes. Uh, we've had The Dark Knight Rises. Um, I think someone posted a negative review and within minutes there was hundreds of negative uh, responses from people who hadn't seen the film. Yeah. Um, and um, it turned out in the end that the guy had given the Dark Knight review a negative review just to get people to be sighting and actually seen the film. Yeah, um, I mean, that's uh, that's an issue that comes from the uh, huge uh, 
variety of opinion out there is that sometimes the voices most likely to get hold are to the voices most likely to be heard are the sort of professional trolls. Yeah, which, uh, which what, we're, we're talking someone like Armand White. Yes, who from I've re- I've read quite a few of his reviews. He's a very good writer and a, very good and a. Uh, a very insightful critic but yeah his reviews like when he says that Jack and Jill is a celebration of the Jewish identity or um, that he spends his review of Margaret attacking the uh, white New York elite for supporting it mm-hmm. rather than saying whether or not it's a good or bad film mm-hmm. you can tell he's basically trolling for uh, people to kind of like retweet or post his reviews to say this guy's an idiot so more people will come and read them you know that's that's his modus operandi and he's done very well with it i mean we're we're in a, we're in an age where um with advertising revenue really you know the currency that the websites deal in i mean the daily mail are you know brilliant for this they mm. they they post a story online which is just reprehensible and then everyone gets on twitter and is like, oh, i can't believe have you seen this and then yeah. the hit count goes up 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 and you know i think they get the most amount of advertising for any website in britain i think it's... i think they're the most popular website in the world news wow. website uh, there was something yeah. where they had they were the most popular news source in the world which is i think it is literally from that is that they post the most reactionary nonsense they mm-hmm. can because people will read it and really i mean that's only uh an extension of how tabloid journalism's always worked which is that you post the most extreme and ridiculous uh stories and people will flock to buy them so it's really i think that's really just an evolution of uh, a particularly nasty form of journalism that's existed for a long time but because it's kind of bled into film criticism which never really had that because you'd be part of a paper and it'd be kind of a separate thing maybe ideologically driven like i imagine a very right-wing paper would be more willing to uh write a positive review of say death wish you know like mm. something that's a, a quite a reactionary work but largely unaffected by by sales to the paper except in a general way whereas now because there's so many sites that are dedicated to just you know film journalism you there's kind of grown up this need to perhaps write things that are um borderline insane mm-hmm. in order to <laughs> in order to uh attract people to the site that should be the daily mail subheading borderline, borderline insane <laughs> um uh, do you consider yourself a film critic Ed? Um, yeah, more than anything else. Yeah, I'd say I probably do. Right, and do, uh, you, do, do, you, do you still hold... Do you think there's a difference between a film critic and a blogger? Uh, I think it's, uh... Yeah, I think it's in the standard... This is going to sound like I'm really big myself. I think it is in the standard of, of, of writing. Um, I think it's in the idea that you are writing for some sort of form of posterity or for some to offer some sort of uh general comment on the film on a film and how it fits into culture mm-hmm. as opposed to blogging which i think is what i started out doing which is very much more from a personal opinion i mean i i, I my when i write reviews they are all from my personal perspective on what i look for in a film mm-hmm. but i still now try and put like what i think is makes me more of a critic than a blogger is the amount of 
the the amount that I tried to put it in a broader context, or the the just the in general the the amount of time I put into the actual crafting of an argument, which right. is another thing as well. Because when like the way I started off writing reviews was writing for not writing for website, writing on forums. And basically, I would see a film and write long, 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 long things in which I just basically said, "This is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is good." And there wasn't, there wasn't a flow. There wasn't a kind of a a way of uh, structuring an argument. Whereas now, you know, whenever I review a film, there is each. Par- I try and make sure that each paragraph flows into each other and that they all support an overall argument about whatever it is I'm writing. Right. So that's that for me is. It's why I would consider myself a critic rather than just a blogger. Right, okay. Do you think there's any negative cachet that goes along with being a blogger? Um, I think it... I, I don't know. I guess it's it's just... It's c- kind of almost a synonym for amateur. Mm-hmm. Uh, which even, like, you know, I know plenty of people who are good critics who are still amateurs because you're not working for a site that pays you or you're getting money just from ad revenue which is what i what i do um but there is something i think there is a there is a stigma to blogger which seems to suggest uh not being part of some sort of uh wider culture just kind of like looking from the outside in right whereas film critics seems to me that you are part of what they're looking at. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I got called a critic on my blog the other day, and I didn't like it one <laughs> bit, because I, I definitely don't consider myself a film critic, right, okay. because I don't put any thought into my reviews, <laughs> and I don't structure an argument. Right. Um, and I got I got called... The, I definitely write, I suppose, polemic, I mm. guess. I'm not really after... You know, I don't... If I was working for a paper or being paid, then I probably would have to abide by yeah. the house rules. But considering it's my own thing, I can just say, you know, if I want to review a film with just a, a diagram <laughs> or a paragraph, then I yeah. will, um, or a sentence. Because um, I, I, I posted a fake review of The Dark Knight Rises, um, full of inaccuracy and lies, to see if I could get a death threat. Um, and unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, someone had already done it before me. Um, but I still, it still did leap up to be the uh, the most read article on my site, second mm-hmm. most article read, uh, read article on my site. Um, and, um, someone said when I actually did the proper review, which, uh, was a paragraph long, um, cause I felt like I'd already talked to death about it on this podcast, the, the bonus podcast we did, uh, and also, you know, in a fake review, mm-hmm. um, I just, re- just wrapped it up in a, in, you know, in a very short, succinct way. And someone said, um, clearly you think this popcorn fodder is beneath you, um, which is a bit rich. <laughs> and then said, I expected more from a critic I admire. <laughs> wow. I don't know. And they, le- they left it anonymously as well. Ooh, these people. That's the worst. I know. I hate anonymous feedback. I always like to know. Anonymous who. backhanded compliments. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, wonder, I just wonder who that person is. But I did ask them, have you read my reviews before? Because <laughs> they're really not. There are a couple of reviews I've written which have been for other sites mm. that have been written in a much more, well, they're like reviews. <laughs> yeah. Whereas normally I just try and write it as quick as possible. Yeah, sure. um, and just hope anyone reads it. Um, we've talked about um, journalism as a thing. Um, what about films about journalists? Um, can you think of any really good examples that spring to mind? 
Uh, well, the one that immediately speaks to mind is all the president's men. That is the the Citizen Kane of journalist films. Kind of the quintessential one, or it's it's modern day equivalent. The, I should say the vertigo of uh, <laughs> of, um, of journalist films. Uh, I think the modern day equivalent would be Zodiac. Yep. Well, they're both films that are very much interested in the process of journalism mm-hmm. rather than the uh, the kind of more lurid kind of thing. Because there's lots of there's lots of films that are about that are from a more tabloidy kind of. Uh, approach they're both investigative films aren't they yes um and key works of investigative journalism i mean all the president's men as a as a piece of journalism you know it it changed you know the political climate in america and now for some reason every time a story breaks we add the word gate at the end Mm. which doesn't make any sense at all because watergate was the name of a hotel yeah and now we add you know diana gate (laughs) well what's the gate bit got to do with it It makes no (laughs) sense whatsoever um, but you know that was a, a key moment in modern American history. Uh, Zodiac thing, not so much. But they approached the, the both uh, Zodiacs approached in very much the same way as uh, very meticulous. All the, all the presidents men. Um, the one I can think of that I you know absolutely love, um, you know, it's a, I think it's one of the best films ever made is uh, uh, the Sweet Smell of Success. Oh yes, which is a brilliant uh, film with Burt Lancaster and uh, Tony Curtis as kind of. Uh, society paper writers aren't they and the, uh, or journalists that um yeah tony curtis is like he writes the gossip column in a in a major thing and uh burt lancaster starts feeding him things to basically ruin the reputations of other people is yeah. that correct yes it is yes and it's, it's been a, a while since i've seen it yeah me too i really I, I probably shouldn't start a sentence by saying first of all i was about to call it the sweet smell of success uh the secret of my success <laughs> which is a michael j fox film which <laughs> is not about journalism is that the one where he goes mad on no, I was going to say that's Bright Likes Big City, where yeah, it's a cokehead, isn't it? This is the one where he starts off in the mailroom of like an office and soon works his way up to like a junior executive. Right. Okay. Um, but it's got a great montage scene. Um, people talk about the battleship Potemkin. The montage scene when they're at the country um, hotel and they're all swapping bedrooms to uh, that song that goes do do do. That one. Oh yeah. Um, is just a masterpiece of, of editing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the the sweet smell of success <laughs> um is a is a really great look at that kind of there's something is it that's a bygone era isn't it? that kind of gossip uh mm. i mean we have it now but it's so tawdry that it's never um yeah it's not really something that's kind of thing today we, we had to go vidal die this this um this week and um i was reminded of one of his brilliant quotes which is i think one of my favorite quotes of all time where he gave a norman mailer book a really bad review so at a party norman mailer came walked up to him and knocked him out and just you know punched him in the face and as uh, i don't know whether he wrote it afterwards or as he stood up he just said once again words fail norman mailer i think he said it to his face <laughs> oh classic yeah no, I, I i was gonna mention that if you hadn't brought up that one that would have been my yeah. <laughs> my selection of a great quote that is uh, marvellous. Um, yeah, uh, can you think of any films uh, that have been written by journalists? Uh, the Hurt Locker, that's uh, written by a journalist. Mark Bowl uh, was embedded with uh, a bomb disposal team in... Was this the same guy who was in Generation Kill? Who's embedded with Generation Kill? Oh, no, is That's uh, Mark Wright. Oh, right. Okay. No, Evan Wright. That's Evan, Evan Wright. Wright. Okay. No, uh, he was embedded with... Uh, with a, a bomb disposal thing, which is where that that story comes from, and I think you can see with uh, things like like that also with Generation Kill, which was uh, in part written by Evan Wright, who uh, 
who who was involved in that series on a script level, mm-hmm. uh, you can see an attention to detail and uh, and focus on minutia, which kind of plays into that. Um, f- as from someone who's kind of experienced it, um, also um, Sam Fuller. Yeah, is, Samuel Fuller was a, a great newspaper man. Uh, made a great film about great newspaper men called Park Row, mm-hmm. which is all about the birth of journalism. But he uh, often, uh, in his his writing, would write about uh, things he had experienced, uh, such as the the Big Red One, which is obviously quite autobiographical or semi autobiographical about his experiences in in World War Two. Shock Corridor, I think, is influenced by research he did uh, as a journalist. Yeah. I think you can really see that in uh, attention to detail and uh, sort of inqu- a general inquisitiveness about the subject matter mm-hmm. in order to give it sort of a sense of reality. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, shall we round things up with a top 10? Yep. And this is bringing it back to the BFI top 50. Yep. Um, we decided that we were going to do a top 10 but using films that weren't listed in the uh, top 50. So we can have anything, (laughs) anything, uh, you know, in the last 50 years is game then because it was a pretty kind of old leaning list. But we're going to take it one at a time and uh, run through, um, you know, I don't know, have you picked favourites, Ed, or have you picked uh, films you, you think are great? Uh, it's a mixture of both. I mean, they're, they're all films that I do think are great films. I don't know if I'd say that they are the greatest films, mm-hmm. but they are certainly ones that uh, I think are, are fantastic and uh, that people should check out, which is really in uh, any sort of top film list. I think that's the, the way to treat it rather than as sort of a serious canon of, of the great films. Yeah, I was saying to you beforehand that there's a, a real... There was a real weird reaction on on Twitter as it was being announced that some people were genuinely, you know, acting as if now it's officially Vertigo is better than Citizen Kane and they're going to have to re-establish their critical boundaries. Yeah. Because <laughs> now they don't know what to think, which is just insane, really. It's just a yeah. list of films, isn't it? It's yeah. Just, you know. And besides it, which, it's only binding in Britain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's only just, you know, marginally less idiotic than the Empire 500 list, which, as I reminded you before we started, included Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Which uh, um, have maybe, you got that on your list? Um, not anymore. No, <laughs> no, that's been ruined. So, what's the first film um, that you think uh, you know would have should have been included on the list that you would love to see there? Uh, well, I'm going to start off with a biggie uh, and a very a reasonably recent one, which is uh, There Will Be Blood. Ah, that was one that people were genuinely talking as if it would make it into the top ten. Yeah, because it was one that's. Uh, I mean, it was only released five years ago, but it's. Earlier on, we were talking about. Uh, I was saying that there's a, a problem with building a consensus about recent films. That seems to be one that's an exception to the rule. It's like if you ask people who are very serious about film or what the sort of the, the great masterpieces of the last sort of decade are, mm-hmm. that's one that almost invariably would get cited, uh, even over um, No Country for Old Men, the film that beat There Will Be Blood for the Best Picture and Best Director Oscars in uh, 2007. Um, and so I feel that it's and and again this is one that that walks that line we're talking about between favourite and, and great I, it is one of my absolute favourite films um, I just love the the scope of it I think the, you know that Daniel Day Lewis is magnetic um, that there's a wonderful uh, wonderful tone to it and you know it's it's a film that on is on 
one level it's very engaging as a narrative about this man uh trying to kind of seize oil and wealth but you know there's so many possible interpretations of what it's about what his motivations are mm-hmm. um or what the film in general is about you know if it's about religion or or capitalism or all these sort of things or if it's just a story about an oil man um and that's what kind of uh, i love about it and what kind of keeps bringing me back to watching it just sort of over and over the years it's every time i watch it i uh it's like seeing a new film essentially that that's why it'll always have the edge over something like um no country for old men which is a fine film mm. but um uh, there will be blood has has more layers to peel back and mm. more to investigate whereas um no country for old men although it, it kind of does really stretch that genre mm-hmm. uh kind of the, the genre elements to it um doesn't quite have the depth yeah, which all... is, is you know rough. I feel like I'm being rough on there. No country for <laughs> men. It's a very great film. Yeah, yeah. And there's so it's something almost mythic about uh, there will be blood. It kind of has that same feel that you know the 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 really great films that it owes a debt to, like uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre, does the idea that that it's almost a story that you might have heard before, mm-hmm. and that you're suddenly seeing retold, even though it's all sort of being told anew to you and that's you know it's it's almost as if it's always existed even though only being five years old it's that sort of towering film same yeah. same way with something like vertigo or, or citizen kane mm. um a good choice um i'm gonna pick uh one of my all-time favorite films and uh one i know you may have seen um jaws which uh would be steven spielberg's uh best shot of getting in the top you think wouldn't but, you? i mean he's not represented at all um I don't think it probably counts as a snub. I'm not sure he's that bothered. Um, but yeah, Jaws, I think, is the perfect fusion. Uh, can we suck off Jaws anymore on this on this podcast? We do seem to uh, uh, kind of fillet it uh, monthly. Um, but it's yeah. a shark. That's difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's the perfect fusion for me of um, entertainment and uh, storytelling um, and also filmmaking craft. It's it's got all three of those uh, in spades, and I, I can't think of a weak link in that film. Even I, I, I even like the the dodgy shark. Yeah, that's that's the the testament of that. People talk about the shark and you know looking a bit crappy, particularly once it eats Robert Shaw. But the thing is, you believe mm-hmm. in it, and that's that's a mark of a great work of of fiction. Is when you can believe in something. You know, you, it's it's all in uh, Robert Shaw's performance. You genuinely believe he is being bitten in half by I think he shark. probably thought he was being eaten by <laughs> I don't think he thinks he was in a fiction he probably, film. He probably felt he was in great danger just from the production of the film up yeah. to that point. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it's just in the way in which that story unfolds, you know, so sort of naturally the characters all feel like real people, which is a combination of, of performance, you know, improvis- improvisation, but also the way in which the story is kind of paced. Mm-hmm. You're introduced to everyone at exactly the right point in the story, and uh, Spielberg just is uh, such a, a naturally gifted storyteller that just unfolds sort of really beautifully. Mm-hmm. And bloodily. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a damn fun film to watch. Oh, yeah. It's fantastically fun, and that's why it's not in the BFI. Yeah, it's too much fun. They hate fun. It's not three hours and shit. <laughs> What's yours next one? Uh, more fun, uh, Raising Arizona. That's a lot of fun. The uh, Coen Brothers' second film. That's uh, slightly quicker paced than Tokyo Story, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Although there are some similarities. No, there's not. Yeah. There's you could many. say it's a hyperkinetic film. 
uh, Raising Arizona. Oh, absolutely. And then, like the cameraman on roller skates in a dodgem. Yeah, or uh, you know when the cameras are zooming through the aisles of a of a shopping centre with dogs chasing after people all the way. Uh, it's a very manic film, but I th- I think it's it's one of the most purely enjoyable films I've ever seen. It's kind of the most rapid fire storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the most rapid fire storytelling I've ever seen. The fact that Nicolas Cage's entire life up until the start of the film is relayed in the first five minutes in this kind of breathless mix of kind of wryly funny uh, voiceover and uh, montage all set to some beautiful and strange uh, whistled uh, music. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, like uh, a lot of the Coen brothers, it's, it's really funny and there's this kind of really dark, skewed sensibility to it, a great sense of place. But I do think there's a, a genuine heart to it. You know, I think you really do feel for Holly Hunter as someone who desperately wants to have a kid and is unable to, which adds, for me, a real resonance to the final scene of the film, which is uh, Nick Cage having that dream about uh, them having a, a big family, which mm-hmm. I think is uh, is genuinely very moving end to what is a knockabout and you know hugely enjoyable uh, farce for the most part. Mm. And a very good performance by uh, John Goodman in it as well. Yes, there's a big blustering fat man. <laughs> it's a stretch for a stretch um, uh, for a Coen Brothers film as well to cast him in <laughs> in that um, is that your favourite Coen Brothers film yeah I'd say so I think it probably shades uh, Barton Think oh Barton Think it's between those two really mm. I think if you'd asked me on another day I would have said Barton Think no, but... this is the thing about the, how the fickle nature of uh, making lists yeah so, so for that, that one, it's Raising Arizona slash Barton Think, which right. are two quite diametrically opposed <laughs> films in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pick uh, as my next film, uh, a film you mentioned earlier whilst talking about There Will Be Blood, but The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, yeah. which is, you watch it, and then the, you can't help but say they don't make them like that anymore hmm. afterwards. Um, it really is um, just such great storytelling and such uh, care and love taken over every aspect of the film um, like you say a very simple story of you know three prospectors who go into the mountains for you know they're in South America somewhere aren't they yes and um, you know looking for you know one last gold they've heard there's a, a, a rich seam of of, uh, of gold somewhere and you know it's there's the old veteran, there's the, you know, the kind of middle-aged guy who's kind of been around the block but has fallen a hard times, and there's the kind of young guy who's a bit... And then, you know, just how they unravel and fall apart and, and you know, it's never pretty... I still, every time I watch it, every every twist and turn is a surprise to me mm. and that's just how uh, absorbing it is as a piece of drama and a, as a piece of, uh, of um, narrative filmmaking. Yeah, and it's also great because it's essentially two great films in one there's the kind of adventurous element of them coming together and going on this quest Mm -hmm. and then defending their uh seam from uh bandits and their badges um and uh you know did you say badges badges oh right okay i can't i just couldn't remember when they released a pack of rapid badges (laughs) into it no, because it's in that where they say you don't need no stinking badges. I do, it? yeah, yes. that's right, yeah. Um, but also after that, you know, after they've got the gold, that's when you start to see the kind of creeping psychological elements as they all are start are kind of torn apart by greed. Mm-hmm. 
which is uh, equally great in a in a different way, and both halves are hugely entertaining. Again, you know, with Jaws as well, it's the combination of the the fact it's a great director. You know, John Huston's one of the all time. He, he knew what he was doing. He was pretty good. Yeah. And then you know you got Walter Houston and uh, and uh, Humphrey Bogart. It's uh, probably his best. I think yep. that's my favorite of his performances. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's up there. He's he's got quite a few, hasn't he? He's Bogart. got a few very good performances. Yep. But you know, it's just a, it's just a, a marvelous film. Yeah, it is. What's what's next? Um, I'm going to go for uh, Sherlock Junior, the uh, Buster Keaton comedy. A wonderful uh, film. It is. Uh, I saw that the General was was listed on the BFI's list, and the the General is also a marvelous film. Even if Pretty good. I, I've always been slightly confused by the fact that it's a big budget comedy in which the hero is a member of the confederacy yeah uh and the union are the enemies mm-hmm. i've always been slightly confused by that but um sherlock jr shades it for me because i think it's one of the most relentlessly inventive comedies yeah. ever i mean there's stuff in that film that i have no idea how they made it the, like the bit with the the bit with the um when he the, the background changes when yeah. he stood in the film yeah yeah um is just astonishing. I mean, to watch it now and think that you know you, they did it without any trickery. It or, was made about ninety years ago. Yeah, that it's is it is absolutely amazing. And it's it's it is hilarious. It is amazing. Like some of the set pieces. There's a one of my favourite ones is just where he leaps out a window and there's like a suit there and he as he leaps through the window he comes out in his outfit. No, I think it's a dress. It's a dress. When he, he when he stands door, up, yeah. he's in a. He's in a disguise, and it's all seamlessly done in just one single take. And it's just a greatly executed gag mm. that is technically really <laughs> difficult to do. Like, you could imagine some, it being an easy thing to kind of, like, cheat with or do two shots of. But he actually does it in a single go. And also, there's a few instances in the film in which he endangers his life, as was his want. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's also just a really funny visual and there's a sort of a, a manic glee to Keaton's best films. Uh, and for me, that's what uh, Sherlock Jr. has in spades. Mm. Um, yeah, I've always preferred Buster Keaton to Charlie Chaplin. I know that you can't just say, mm. just compare them because they were two they silent are, film stars at the same time. And they time. are very different. Like, Chaplin was, he always had pathos. Yes. And he was less... He could do physical stuff, but it was less exuberant. Yeah, than you didn't see him sitting on the front of a train. <laughs> no, you didn't. Doing throwing real railway sleepers off of a railway sleepers. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's crackers. Um, I'm going to pick um, for my next choice um, another one of my favourites, which is I don't know whether this would ever be considered a great film. I think some people consider it a great film, um, but I'm going to pick uh, Lone Star, which is uh, a film by one of my favourite directors is John Sayles. Um, I think it's one of the 90s key films, but no one seems to have ever seen it. Have you seen it, Ed? No. No, Sorry. brilliant. Um, but yeah, John Sayles makes films um, that are kind of uh, large ensemble pieces um, that have uh, kind of social commentary behind them and um, tend to tell kind of real American tales. Um, and, you know, he's, he's got a, a fine line in, in those kind of films. I mean, The City of Hope is one that... W- would have challenged the title had I been more familiar with it. I've only seen it once, whereas Lone Star I've seen several times. Um, but Lone Star is the, uh, Matthew McConaughey's best film. <laughs> Probably he plays... Um, uh, the, the film starts with the discovery of a skeleton 
um, and it's a long, long uh, unsolved murder case. Uh, it sheds light on a on a uh, a long thought solved murder case. Um, I mean, they find the skeleton of the old sh- a legendary sheriff, um, and then you f- you you hear about you know um, his life through the eyes of all the residents of this Texas town, which includes. Uh, you know the Mexican waitress, uh, Mexican restaurant owner who's smuggling immigrants across the river, to the um, kind of African American uh, uh, family who have been posted there as a, as a military um, in the military kind of barracks, I guess, and you know troubles with his son, and then you know the the son of the sheriff who died, now played by Chris Cooper, and it's all woven beautifully together um, in a in a. Uh, you know, a really remarkable way, and again, I, I suppose that this is my one concession to a sheer personal choice because I don't think it's regarded as much as John Sayles is regarded as an important filmmaker. His films aren't regarded individually as being important, um, and I think that's why I'd like to see it represented there. Um, I think that if you look through the uh, sight and sound list, and I'll be proved wrong by the time this comes out he, I, I think some of his films probably would have been picked yeah but i don't think there'd be enough enough to get it anywhere near the the top hundred okay um but yes you should watch it i will do definitely when you go to america because it's not available in region two. <laughs> um but yes it's a great film okay uh, my next one uh it's getting hard to go for my long list here but i'm going to go for uh ikiru hey, that's or, a great film or to live Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, Akira Kurosawa film about a uh, bureaucrat who discovers that he has uh, cancer, that he is going to die. And starts a crystal meth lab in a Winnebago. <laughs> oh, imagine that. And uh, decides that he's going to use his last months on Earth in order to turn a sort of uh, broken down, disused, horrible area of the uh, area of the city that he uh, looks after into a uh, children's playground it's a very simple concept mm-hmm. the film unfolds in a sort of fractured narrative sort of way and a, it, the he, yeah there's a, a big thing that happens halfway through the film yeah um which it's is a big leap forward in yeah, time a big leap forward in time a massive jarring almost yeah um, I was very surprised that Akira didn't actually make the list if I'm perfectly no honest. you think because it's it's uh, generally cited as, as one of uh, Kurosawa, like Kurosawa, made he made a few great films. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, again, yeah. Uh, um, and it's one of the the two or three that's usually cited, you know, as his masterpieces. You know, he's the, that's the thing about Kurosawa was that he's the sort of person who several of his films could be cited as his masterpiece. But it's usually that or Rosh, Rashomon or um, Seven, Seven Samurai. Samurai. I mean, Rashomon made the list, I think, as did Seven Samurai. Yeah, so there's two of his films. Uh, made the list, which is a good show. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you think Akira, because it's so... Maybe because it's so uh, openly sort of sentimental, mm-hmm. that might count against it in some... Like, maybe, because I think when people try and think of important films, they don't seem to go for ones that are overly emotional mm. or or high on sentiment, which is also probably the reason why uh, Steven Spielberg has often said it's one of his sort of favourite films. Yeah, I mean, whereas that differs is it, it's not quite saccharine, is it? It's, no. It's really simple and sweet. I mean, the image of, you know, it's... The image of of, uh, of him sitting on the swing... Singing uh, to himself. Singing to himself is, is, you know, one of the most simple and uh, beautiful images in 
in kind of cinema really um and yeah i mean that would that would be a stone cold banker to make most most lists uh, yeah. and i'm very surprised it's it's not on the list if I'm honest. yeah it's it's a it's a truly amazing and and simple uh, low key story but it's in the as with the best of uh, kurosawa's films it's there's uh, something sort of elemental about it you know it feels as if it's reaching deep down into something about humanity and but not in a way that feels you know portentous or uh or pretentious it's it feels very real and and honest and human mm, it does um i'm gonna again this is one of my favorite films um but i think that this one probably would make it onto a list and i think if you expanded the bfi list to 100 it would probably be nestling somewhere in there mm. um which is the apartment billy wilder's um incredibly dark comedy <laughs> um a uh very funny um but also very um for its time for considering it was uh 59 60 i think uh, 60 um for its time quite uh sexually bold i yep. guess the story of <laughs> so, a of a kind of office worker who rents his apartment out to uh, his superiors in the office who want to have uh, a little bit on the side in mm. order to get himself climbing the career ladder. Yeah, it's uh, one of his... In my, Billy Wilder was uh, made quite a lot of very cynical films. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably one of his... It's kind of his most quietly cynical because it's not like ladling it on that that's what uh, Jack Lemmon is trying to do. Yeah. But it's clear that's exactly what's happening because yeah. everything good that happens to him, like, work-wise is uh, to do with the fact that he n- knows the right people and gives them the spare key to, the his, key apartment to his apartment while he yeah. freezes out on the street. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, it's just endlessly rewatchable. There's so many moments in that from the bit where he finds her mirror mm. and it's cracked. Yeah. Um, the the emotion that's going on in that room there is, is, is you know, palpable. But then to the more kind of slightly goofy elements are he's straining pasta through the tennis <laughs> the tennis racket and saying that he's serving the meatballs up and yeah. you know and the relationship he has with these neighbors the kind mm. of jewish doctor and and that i mean it's just a it's just a undeniably awesome film yeah. that's me being really reductive undeniably awesome, awesome i said not only did i say it was awesome which is the most overused word ever yeah i said it's undeniably so you can't <laughs> even argue with me no definitely not and well, would you would you would you argue with me about the apartment? Absolutely not. It's one some like it hot is the one that always gets up there, isn't it? No, I much prefer. I mean, I d- like somewhat like it hot's a very good film, but I I love the apartment. No, for all the reasons you said, but also for the fact that it has these disparate elements. You know, the the darkness, the romance, the goofiness, but it also uh, interweaves them at some points. Like the key moment is uh, when the doctor and uh, Jack Lemon are trying to revive the person who's tried to commit suicide, and they do it by kind of like walking them round and round the apartment and there's kind of, and the doctor's kind of like shouting at them to get mm-hmm. it done which on the surface is quite a ridiculous thing because it's played in quite a broad way mm-hmm. but you know the the themes of it are very dark the relationships between the characters is very there's great uh uh turmoil obviously going on underneath the surface in that instance and uh it's the sort of thing that if played badly that could be completely ridiculous, but it balances all of those things beautifully, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why it's an amazing film. Um, what have you got next? Okay, uh, my last one, um, I'm going to go for Love and Death, the 1975 Woody Allen comedy. Uh, 
which is a mix of Mar- of a Marx Brothers, Bob Hope style uh, farce with uh, the great works of Russian literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I watched this again uh, recently, um, and I was just reminded about how wonderful it is. It's my I'm one of the things uh, I don't think Woody Allen is on that list. No, um, and nor are, nor are the Marx Brothers actually. Have you just said that? Which uh, duck soup is usually a fixture of that's such lists. That's usually one, and that's one I think I would argue for being included on most lists of the best films ever made. Uh, but Love and Death is the one for me that uh, just works as a as a pure comedy. And he, he you know, he he was very good as at drama as well. You know, there's plenty of good drama on his CV from that era as well. But uh, for me, like his comedy is the thing that he was most amazing at. And that the the blend of this really high minded thing where he's satirizing Tolstoy with you know the scene where they're in the middle of a battle and a peanut vendor shows up and starts trying to sell things to the troops you know it's it's something that shouldn't like the apartment it shouldn't work that there are these two things, but both of them do they're both really really funny uh elements of it or i say that as someone who's read some dostoevsky and tolstoy uh but you know it's it's just a a really vibrant and and hilarious film uh and probably the purest for me the purest like version of his uh of his comedy it feels unfiltered like he's not really making any concessions to anyone he's just very much going uh this is all the stuff that i think is hilarious and puts it all up on screen um, I would you think that um, that Love and Death is the most likely Alan to crack a list like that, or do you think that's still Annie Hall or Manhattan? Yeah, it's going to be Annie Hall or, or Manhattan, and that's not I have no problem with that. They're both very good. They're both pretty good. Um, uh, and I, I think Annie Hall is probably the better film, probably the the greater film if you're mm-hmm. going to talk about influence or um, as as an artistic statement. Uh, but for me, uh, Love and Death is the one that kind of hits home more because I just enjoy it more, and I think it's 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 just a a a, a romp. A romp. Um, I'm going to pick one, and it's one that um, I just had to check the list again uh, to make sure it wasn't on there because I cannot believe it hasn't made the list, and it represents a very un- underrepresented um, element uh, on that list, which is British film, um, which is a matter of life and death. Oh. Which I can't believe isn't on the top fifty. And I mean, I can't. There really aren't any British films on that list. No, I thought the Red Shoes would be in there at least. Yeah, there's no Powell or Pressburger. Let me just double check. I'm pretty sure there isn't because I think the highest rated is the Third Man, which is at like number seventy three from people who've like leaked details of the top one hundred. Right. Because yeah, there's there's really there. I can't see any British films on this list. Yeah, I think there aren't any. What do you think about what do you think that says about? British, it's a British Film Institute's list, mm, but yeah. there's no British films on it. I think it's 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 the problem you're going to have when you uh, ask a very broad strata of people because I think uh, the Amer- um, since the the Second World War, American culture has become so dominant that when your mind turns to the great works of cinema, those are the things that instantly come to mind, and I think the people are more readily happy to kind of li- list, but also. America kind of has its established canon. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got your Vertigo's, your Citizen Kane's, all of those ones. Uh, your searches. Whereas I think Britain, we kind of don't. We it, there's no. I don't think there's a, a sense of what is the quintessential great British film. It's Snatch. 
It's his snatch. I believe you'll find it's swept away. Um, <laughs> if we're going to argue about Richie's oeuvre. Yeah. Um, no, I think, it, I think it is that there's no real kind of cast iron, like two or three films that everyone would say would be great. You know, maybe cares or something or you'll have films that are really popular something mm-hmm. like the italian job which, or with you know, and i, or or with like and I yeah. but they're not necessarily ones that when people kind of think they are the, the that's the best well, that if, the country has to offer if people did mm. then i'm pretty sure that a matter of life and death it would have to be very high most of prowl 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 and prowl and Pressburger, <laughs> um prowl and pressburger two two chaps who did know what they were doing mm. um um very much so use the phrase we coined earlier um, they're really operating at the top of their game in a film which is um, very British and also Crackers, <laughs> um, a film about a, a, a World War Two pilot who uh, dies. Yep. Um, but is let back on Earth due to an administrative error. <laughs> that's in a very, heaven. That's a very British. Uh... <laughs> a film in which it involves around heaven and administrative errors. Yeah. Um, but um, visually one of the most striking films that's ever been made, certainly in this country, um, uh, as a film which encapsulates a, a certain type of Britishness. Mm. Um, stoic. Stoic Britishness. Um, it's, you know, it got to be up there because, I mean, they did make some good films, Powell and Pressburger, and you could, like I say, you could easily pick The Red Shoes, you could pick Black Narcissus. Uh, um, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp's one I'm very fond of. Yes, um, but I, I think this one probably... Um, takes the cake um in terms of being an overall um yes. well-rounded piece of work yeah it's got uh, such f- fantastic uh design you know mm-hmm. it is one of the most beautiful british films ever made and it's depiction of heaven you know all that stark black and white uh imagery uh, but also like the technical stuff on earth which is uh, beautifully illustrated and you know some of the things that they try to do like you know when they have people stop mid-action which mm-hmm. could look ridiculous and silly yep. but really works um but you know it's just got such a an a mesmerizing uh script particularly once you get into the final act and they've got the court scene in heaven in which uh roger livesey has to stand up on and defend david niven and uh he's talking about kind of what it means to be british uh, uh which is really quite beautiful it's an astonishing and, and wonderful film and uh yeah i'm happy for that to be in the top 10 okay nice one because i didn't think you liked it from what <laughs> I um so yeah i mean that's our 10 films that you know the alternate 10 as it were um that wraps up this episode and we'll be back um at some point in the future before ed jets off to america <laughs> um so yeah thanks for listening and once again if we haven't talked about it it's not worth mentioning um so yeah it's goodbye for me and it's goodbye for me and goodbye for me, and goodbye for me.